This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Last week, our colleague Kate Shelnut published a piece investigating allegations of spiritual abuse by Steve Timmis. Many of our American listeners may know Timmis' name from his leadership as CEO of the church planting ministry, Acts 29. But long before assuming the leadership role in 2014, Timmis was known for his model of intensive gospel community developed at his 120-person church in England that was known as the Crowded House. As the author of Total Church, A Radical Reshaping Around Gospel and Community, and Everyday Church, Gospel Communities on Mission, Tim has developed an international platform for his teachings on how to build a closed church community. But not everyone who was part of Timis's close-knit church community felt warmly towards the church leader. So I'm going to read something from our report. It said, 15 people who served under Timis described to Christianity Today a pattern of spiritual abuse through bullying and intimidation, overbearing demands in the name of mission and discipline, rejection of critical feedback, and an expectation of unconditional loyalty. End quote. One of the sources in the story, Pastor Melvin Tinker taught at a training program alongside Timis and considered him a close friend. But when he began to hear stories from others that Timis was quote-unquote dismissive, when students shared alternate views on doing ministry, things changed. So this is a quote from Pastor Melvin Tinker. If spiritual abuse is the manipulation of people for whom Christian leaders are responsible, which benefits them to the spiritual detriment of those cared for, involving lack of accountability, this is very much in evidence at the Crowded House in general and Steve Timmis in particular. We wanted to discuss what people are referring to when they categorize something as spiritual abuse and why it might be hard for people in close-knit communities to realize the unhealthy state of their church's leadership. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm editorial director at Christianity Today. Back for the second week in a row. It's really fun. I'm glad that you're here. All right. There's a lot happening here, Ted, but I do want to get a sense of how you're reacting to the story. Yeah, you know, we usually do this gut check and usually we're uh, responding to a breaking story. I can't quite do that this time because I was aware of you know, some of this as Kate had been working on it. I, I helped uh, to edit the piece. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, obviously a sad story. We, you know, we've covered a lot of the Acts 29 issues over time from going back to uh, Mark Driscoll situation, which also had elements of spiritual abuse and, and abuse of power. In that situation, several other prominent leaders who resigned over whether it's abuse or uh, just uh, anger issues or, or manipulation of people in their communities. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just sad to see some stories repeat. What I really appreciated about Kate's story was a lot of these questions she raised in the piece about being in a tight, small community and how so many people in the story were like, you know, thought at the time, I didn't really think of it as abuse. But as things went on, I'm like, you know, yeah, this is unhealthy. And in the same way, you had the X-29 leaders start off by saying this just sounds like 
different leadership style. People raised complaints and their response was, you know, they, they looked at it and said, well, you know, it sounds intense. I don't know. There's abuse and it just sounds like you guys are frustrated. You know, Acts 29 leadership, you can read the story. They've, they've taken more serious measures since this reporting. I resonate with that. I resonate with, with that as someone who you know, has, a, has a deep desire for intimacy, for close communities, having been part of both faith communities and other kinds of communities where there was uh, an intense desire to get involved in each other's stuff, but also having been part of communities and reported on communities that are, that are extremely destructive. I've reported on a number of cults that started off as really interesting Christian groups and just became cult-like both in both in their doctrine and in their behavior. So, boy, it's a, it's a cloudy line, so I'm eager to, eager to chat about it today. Yeah, I actually thought it'd be helpful to read a tiny bit more from Kate's story. She said, little things that pastors in the average church wouldn't care about were treated as big deals by Timis, they said. One couple said they were confronted for missing an impromptu barbecue with their gospel community in order to spend planned family time with their kids. They were accused of not putting the mission of the church first. Several who took interest in ministry opportunities outside the mission for their gospel community, which could shift or change under Timis's orders, also received pushback, told not to pursue an outside Bible study or social time or not to volunteer with a local coffee shop or summer camp. Students in the university town were discouraged from returning home to their families over the summer. It was seen as a sign they weren't really committed to the life of the church. And I also think that's really interesting, too, about this theme of what is just natural investment and care for a spiritual leader of a small community to take? And what is natural? I think you and I would probably both agree that communities are going to put some sort of weight on the time that where you spend the time, right? I mean, work community comes to mind is like the most obvious one, though there's payment involved. But any type of community has some sort of demands that it puts on its members. And so at what point does that demand become unreasonable and healthy, manipulative, inappropriate? All of those examples I gave, I think, don't look great. And at the same time, I can imagine as, as someone who's done a program before that like actually had a requirement that I'd be there on a particular weekend that involved me missing my sister's graduation from college. You know, this was a program that I had bought into and done it, but I was basically told you're not really going to be part of the program if you go to this because you signed up to be there. You know, I don't look back at that and think of that as unhealthy, but that's a, you know, also a pretty big event that I was had to miss as a result of that. This story to me just made me think like, well, how would I know? And that's what I'm hoping we can kind of get in today. One of the most common things we hear at Christianity Today from pastors is this frustration of, you know, I've got my congregation for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half a week. Something like Fox News has them every day for five hours a day. Fox News is able to disciple them in a way that we're, I'm unable to. I just, we can't, I don't have the FaceTime. I don't have the ability to kind of have this repeated, repeated messaging we, we, and to have that kind of give and take. And, you know, Fox News obviously doesn't have a give and take there, but you, you, get, you get what I'm saying. Or the comparison to work, like you said. And I think that there's lots of people that are like, wouldn't it be great if we were together all the, you know, every day, if we were sharing meals all the time? I'll be curious to hear a little bit as we discuss today about your experience, Morgan, in one of these small, intimate churches. I'm in a relatively small, 100, you know, 120 size. This has been intimate, but also is not necessarily everybody's in your face, but there's a lot of mutual caretaking. So let's talk about this with our guest today. Please tell us. Our guest today is Lisa Oakley. She is associate professor at the University of Chester in the UK, and she has researched spiritual abuse in the Christian faith in the UK since 2003. In fact, her her doctorate is on that very topic. She is also the chair of the Church of England Task and Finish Group for Spiritual Abuse, 
and uh, we have quoted her a number of times in Christianity Today. She's got a, a number of great books on this topic that she has uh, authored and co-authored, and so we're really glad to have someone with this kind of expertise on the uh, on the podcast with us. Uh, welcome, Alisa. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are super grateful that you could join us. All right, let us just you know start with a a softball question here. What spiritual abuse? <laughs> uh, well, that's so not such a softball question in some ways because it's a, it's a very controversial question um, because we have other forms of abuse, certainly within the UK context, which have a, a, a recognised category. Spiritual abuse is not that. We, I would argue from the work that I've done that it is a form of emotional and psychological abuse. And for us, we do have those as recognised categories of abuse. would only be honest to say that the terminology is controversial and it's not openly agreed by everybody although I think there is more and more use of it and more and more people starting beginning to understand what we're talking about when we use that terminology so for us we're talking about a systematic pattern of coercive controlling behavior in a religious context so you were talking about you know where do you draw the lines and that is a difficult question actually where do the lines get drawn I think one of the things we've been doing some work about is looking at a spectrum of behaviors in many Christian Christian context, behavior is actually very healthy. We probably need to celebrate that more than we do because we often don't tell good news stories or they don't get told. And then along the spectrum, it might become unhelpful. So something that isn't particularly helpful to us, but actually isn't harmful. And as you move further along that spectrum, it might become unhealthy and it might become controlling and it might start to have a, an impact on an individual psychologically and emotionally. And if you continue and that becomes a pattern of sys- systematic coercion and control over a period of time, that's where it may may then cross a threshold into abuse. And that would be the kind of spectrum that we would use if we were looking at psychological abuse. We would have to evidence a pattern of controlling behavior over a period of time. I know we've we've talked about this a little bit in the pages of CT, but I'm just curious, is spiritual abuse just an abuse of power that happens in a church context? I mean, is it important to have the word spiritual there as a separate category? I mean, what what, what sets it apart from abuse of power in other situations? Okay, so is it just in a Christian context? No, it's definitely across different faiths and different religions. I think what sets it apart to say, I wouldn't argue that we should have a separate category that is spiritual abuse. I would say it is a form of psychological abuse. But what we need to recognize is that there are characteristics of spiritual abuse, which actually mean that it can't just be subsumed in that bigger category of psychological abuse. And that is things like the use of for in the Christian context, the use of scripture to control and to coerce, the use of divine position. So God has put me here and therefore you can't question me and you can't disagree with me and you must do what I say. Even the use of God as complicit. So God wants you to do this. This is what you're required to do. And the use of spiritual threats. So I've spent quite a lot of time over the years that I've been working in this area, listening to people's stories who've been told that they won't go to heaven now because they've done this or that God won't bless them because they've done that. And that is different to psychological abuse in other institutions. Those added layers are different and need to be understood. I've heard stories like that, too, and they are they are, uh, they are absolutely heartbreaking. I, I guess in terms of I want to get into helping people who've under, who've experienced spiritual abuse, but is the helping people who have experienced it significantly different than helping people who've experienced psychological abuse? 
I think that that some of the elements of it are definitely the same, understanding how it might have impacted on their sense of self, how they think about themselves, how they think about the world. But I also think that some of the differences that we see here is the impact that it has on people's faith. And if that is a core part of who you are and how you live your life, for many people, they feel that they lose God within that experience. And so actually, we've done some work with around counselling and looking at how do counsellors support people who have these experiences and one of the things survivors often say is they need to be able to talk about the faith aspect of it they need to be able to talk about the spiritual aspect and what it's done to them spiritually as well as the other things that they may talk about in any form of psychological abuse so you mentioned that this term is maybe on the the newer end of things when did it first come about I've got quite a lot of what my husband used to call my strange library at home which has got lots of books called um faith and when church hurts and and there's actually quite an old book in there by somebody called Richard Baxter and it was a and it was called I think it's called the reformed pastor it was written very very early on and in that he talked about manipulation but more recently of course we've had the term heavy shepherding which many people will be familiar with that was quite often associated with house churches and it started to be the use of that started to diminish but then in its place came the term spiritual abuse. And there's a book called The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse by Johnson and Von Vaudrin, and they probably that's one of the most well-known books where that terminology began. So we're sort of seeing from the early 1990s onwards that terminology. But I would say that it was used much more um, in the States than it was in the UK until probably the last 15 years or so. And even here, I would say the last two or three years, it's been becoming used more and more. You had mentioned house churches. I'm just curious, are, are there particular types of Christian environments that would be more susceptible to spiritual abuse? It's something that I've looked at in my work. And um, certainly in terms of when I did my doctorate, the stories that I were off, was offered were more from branches that believed that God spoke today or, or may speak in words and pictures today, so ministry of the Holy Spirit. However, We've taken stories from across all expressions of the Christian faith. And in the most recent piece of research we did with an organization called 318, they had 1,531 people complete a questionnaire on spiritual abuse, and they came from a whole range of denominations. So I think for me, there's a, the big question is, what's actually happening here? And how do we create healthy cultures where these things are less likely to happen rather than trying to pinpoint where they may or may not? Because then you might assume that something is safe and something isn't but really what we want to do is look at the behavior and say how do we create healthy christian cultures where everyone flourishes and everyone's safe i definitely empathize with the not wanting to give people a false sense of security for that particular thing but i am just curious given that our particular example that we talked about with tim has happened in this really small church what would you say are some of the ways that spiritual abuse particularly can manifest in a smaller community? I don't know that I've actually looked at it in terms of the size of community. I think I've looked more at the characteristics of what spiritual abuse actually looks like in terms of things like enforced accountability, censorship for decision-making, requirements for secrecy and silence, control through the use of sacred texts. I think one of the things we do see is that you can have actually quite a healthy culture in which one part of it is quite spiritually abusive. So you might have an individual house group leader, for example, who is operating quite controllingly in an otherwise quite healthy 
context. There may be, if you're in a small group situation, there may be more pressure on enforced accountability, etc. But I haven't looked at it specifically like that. I've been looking, and I've certainly got examples in places that are quite big. So I'm not sure it is connected just to small groups. The other thing I think is really important, and we haven't said yet, but I think it's really, really important, is to understand that spiritual abuse is not just perpetrated by leaders. Many leaders will experience this kind of behaviour from either other members of leadership teams or powerful members of their congregation. And I think that's even more hidden than the stories that we're talking about at the moment. What does that often look like when it's bottom-up, when it's congregation to leader spiritual abuse? Is it the same kind of thing or uh, misuse of, of scripture and, and uh, authority? Like what, what's, tell me a little bit of how that, how that shapes up. There's different forms of power, aren't there? So you might have power because you're in authority, but you might have relational power. So if you are a significant person in a congregation that many other people listen to, your relational power in that setting gives you that influence bottom up, if you like, and you might use texts and and passages of scripture around servant leadership, sacrifice, those sorts of things to manipulate and control your leader. And I've certainly spoken over the last few years to many leaders who are really broken. Yeah, we hear the, we hear those stories. CT Pastors has covered has covered that quite a bit. Both the uh, concern of the pastor to care for the flock, and then also the what do you do when you have someone in your congregation who's who's abusing you? What do you make of these? I mean, is there a special danger for smaller churches where the community is closer in, where there's a, a smaller group of people, or where there's more opportunity to be involved on on more than just a an hour a week? I certainly think one of the um, hallmarks of spiritual abuse is often the requirement um, for excessive commitment. And what happens within that context is that you have less and less time to spend outside of that context. And therefore, you have less options to either speak to other people and recognize that what you're experiencing is not what might be considered to be normal Christian life or healthy Christian practice. And you actually might be very tired as well if you're spending more and more and more time in one particular place. One thing I would say is as well, it depends that there are different structures, aren't there? So so if you are part of a a broader denomination where there may be accountability built in, there may be more risk around something operating independently where there's no oversight and nobody's actually speaking into that context. However, my caveat on that would be that you can have a situation that looks like there's accountability, but actually there isn't. And so I think we need really good safeguarding structures that do, do allow people to raise concerns and raise issues when they have them. And many people who've experienced spiritual abuse will be very, very scared to speak out. And one of the things that came up in in this reporting was not just people who were afraid of speaking out, but also there was a lot of self-doubt among people who were like, I don't know, is this something I should be concerned about? Or does this, is this what costly discipleship is supposed to look like? I mean, obviously checking things against scripture is one thing, but you know, when you think about something like, you know, Jeremiah condemning the uh, shepherds for scattering the flock and, and for driving them away with abusive thing, or for you know, when you have Jesus saying, do not lord it over people like the Gentiles do or, the, or those kinds of things, there's not a lot of specifics. I mean, there's warnings against spiritual abuse in Scripture, but there's not necessarily uh, five-point checklists for saying, you know, here's, here's when something has crossed the line. Uh, over, no, but I think yeah. there are there are throughout Scripture. There's lots of passages which talk to us about how we should treat each other. 
Um, and so I think that for us, the work where where the work for me, there's there's two sides to this. There is the area of work around spiritual abuse, acknowledging people's stories, the hurt and the harm that's been done, and working with them towards restoration. But there is also what prevention looks like, and that is looking at what does a healthy culture look like, and what are the hallmarks of a healthy culture. And in a healthy culture, you can ask questions and you can disagree. You want to do it respectfully and well, but you can do that. And I think there are some ways in which we can, there are certainly hallmarks of healthy cultures, but there are also things that we can ask, you know, how easy is it to ask questions? How easy is it to say when we're uncomfortable? How pressured do we feel in a situation? And and working towards a, a context in which everybody is nurtured and nurturing. Is it tricky to navigate this cross-culturally? I'm thinking of, you know, you have highly relational cultures, you know, in the U.S., some highly individualistic cultures. You have places where autonomy is highly valued and other places where community is highly valued. Is it is it trickier to parse out uh, abuse working cross-culturally or working when someone's going from one place to another? It seems like in this case, and again, you might have to get into specifics, but one of the quotes that is in the story is, People trying to figure out is this, is this uh, uh, you know is Americans trying to figure out is this just something that's unique in a British context? So I'm wondering how culture fits into some of this. Well, it's not unique in a British context, but but I think that culture is really really important. There are actually some people who've done some work around power and culture, and obviously leadership can be connected to culture. But I think that there is a counter argument to that as well. In that, yes, we have to take. Uh, counterculture and it is really important to understand that because that helps us to understand what's actually happening in situations. But I also think there is a cultural value in scripture around how we treat each other etc which is not bound by countries' lines and so I think that yes we have to look at that and we have to take account of that but in the stories that I've taken over the years there are you know so many common patterns and common messages about and actually what you said about self-doubt is there it's really really big for people partly because spiritual abuse as a terminology is still being debated and so I think it's perhaps more accepted in the USA than it is in the UK, although I think there is a, a, a sea change with that here as well. But where you have a different category of abuse, if somebody experiences that, they're not having to argue about whether this is real or not and whether this is abuse or not. They're able to kind of go to the point of getting help and support. So I think that makes it very difficult. I think the other thing that makes it very difficult is that psychological abuse is not a one-off. It's usually a series of incidents which, told by themselves, can seem minimal. It's when you put that story together that you actually start to see this pattern of control. So for people themselves, when they're thinking back over their own experiences, they there is a lot of self-doubt. Was it really that bad? Was I to blame? Should I have done more? And that is, an, is a, quite a common response from people because of that needing to put together that story. But also, we're in a context where it's been said recently, especially in the UK, we're in the context where we've got a national inquiry into child abuse, um, religious organisations being looked at as part of that. And one of the um, participants in my very first piece of research said, we don't want the world to think that the church that preaches love can't live it out, so we just walk a long, lonely, misunderstood road. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, 
but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So for someone who is feeling that the leadership in this particular instance may be acting in ways that are unfair or inappropriate, you know, maybe they haven't necessarily considered the idea that it's abuse, but they know that something doesn't feel right about it. What advice do you have for them? I think a lot of it depends on where the context in which they're in. So people are very, very scared. And certainly in uh, stories that when people are telling their accounts, there is a huge amount of fear. Where you go depends on where you're having your experience, what other help and support might be offered. So here in, in the UK, there's a recently been an organisation called Replenish started, which works across faith and people can ring up if they have experiences of spiritual abuse and talk to somebody completely confidentially outside of their context. We've also got things like an organisation called 318. I did the research with that I have a 24-7 helpline. I don't know what you have in, in the USA. There are places where people can go um, to get help and advice. What I would say, though, is two things, that we need to have a much better understanding of this so that people who are in supporting roles have a better understanding to be able to support well. And we need more places and more organizations that people can go to. I'm just curious, though. So you, I think our natural tendency sometimes is to want to talk to other people who are part of that community and say, is this just me? Is this happening? Do you advise people to talk to their fellow congregants? I think I wouldn't give out advice because I would need to know individual context. But I think if you think about other forms of abuse, people are actually often quite reluctant and they might be at risk if they do that. I think if there's a safeguarding structure within your organisation or wider denomination, that that is also a route that people should be thinking about going and speaking to. But there is a huge amount of fear. It's my experience that people generally don't share stories while they're still in the context. It's usually when they've left. That's often because they might think it's only them or they might doubt that actually what they're experiencing is as bad as they think it is. And so there, there isn't often that, that speaking within. It's usually pe after people have left and then they might and then other people leave and then people find each other afterwards and share common stories. Yeah, I feel like that came up in our piece. Yeah, it definitely did. Abusive leaders, abusive communities, do they do they have a similar trajectory? I'm, I'm just thinking of all these stories I know of what, what I would might consider more like cult behaviors, where things oftentimes start off pretty healthy. They start off with great, good, decent theology, a lot of self, a lot of care. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, the kind of the example everyone always goes to, you know, the Jonestown community. I mean, Jonestown started off 
as an amazing, loving social justice community. It was pretty much like the sojourners community here in the U.S. and attracted a ton of people. And it was great. And then it just kind of cl- classic frog in the kettle where it just kind of became slightly crazier, slightly crazier, slightly crazier, slightly more abusive, slightly more abusive. And then, of course, a murderous cult. What I'm curious about is, is a cult trajectory similar to an abusive environment trajectory or is it are they really different things like i i think that one one thing that i i hear is and in, in people who've experienced some spiritual abuse is they look at kind of some extreme cult behavior and they say well it's not that bad so therefore maybe this maybe this isn't so bad do we need to separate out kind of cult-like behavior from like just manipulation and, and abuse behavior I think it's an interesting question. I actually wrote a section in my PhD called A Cult by Any Other Name. And I think where you get to the the very controlling end of spiritual abuse, I think it's actually quite difficult sometimes to separate that out from cultic behavior. I think that's different from being in a cult. And I think that the kind of help and support people need will be need to be partnered with a degree of coercion and control and spiritual abuse that they've experienced. One thing that I would say is you said things start off very healthily and certainly that in my research when I've mapped the pro- I've got a process model of spiritual abuse it's usually very positive at the beginning. Now that is the case with a lot of models of abuse so if you look at domestic violence usually relationships are very positive at the beginning and then they become more controlling as they go. There's work we've done around intentionality so do people set out to control and coerce and spiritually abuse each other and I don't find a lot of evidence for that in the work that I do I do think we've got some serious questions to ask ourselves as churches which is how we set up leadership we expect a huge amount from our leaders we expect them to be all things to all people and we have a a system that says you're only really successful if there's lots of people in your um, group and that's how we measure success and then we put a lot of pressure on people to achieve and they can control other people in order to meet those goals that have been put on them. That doesn't excuse that behaviour, but I think we do need to look at how we're doing church and how we're doing Christian communities. But I also think that one of the litmus tests for me is that where somebody is challenged, that is often a litmus test in terms of whether they are willing to be challenged and whether they are open to being accountable about their behaviour or whether the person who brings the problem, as Johnson and Van Gordon would say, become the problem. And that, for me, is a real litmus test where somebody may, so somebody might unintentionally be controlling um, for a variety of reasons, but when they are challenged about their behaviour or they're told that somebody's experienced that's harmful, if they can reflect on that and change their behaviour, that's one thing. But if they are extremely defensive and not open to question and challenge, that would be of a concern to me. So help me go a little bit deeper on that because we have a lot of pastors who listen to this podcast and who read Christianity Today. And I know a lot of them wrestle with some of the with that regardless of whether they're abusive you know that that question of how do i take how do i take criticism you know if someone is wrestling with like they know their own temptations towards let's say anger towards being controlling some of these things are you know human human frailty type types of types of things certainly i can i can think of times in my own life as a as a father you know times i've lost my temper sometimes i've not taken criticism well from my wife or from my kids but abuse may you know is a little bit of a strong word in those cases how as a pastor might i recognize and again i accepting that you know, pastors can be victims as well but 
But if I'm a pastor saying, okay, you know, I don't like to be criticized. I know I've, I've uh, gotten mad at, at these congregants who are criticizing me all the time. What would be a good way for them to check whether they have crossed this line or they are repeatedly crossing this line into actual spiritual abuse behavior? I think one of the things is none of us like criticism. It's not just pastors, is it? I mean, none of us are the best at dealing with criticism often. But I think it is about developing the ability for self-reflection. And actually, when somebody does challenge or ask questions, I mean, even asking yourself a question, can people ask questions? You know, is this, a, is this an environment in which people can question, in which they can discuss, in which they can disagree respectfully? And it is important that it's respectful because leaders can get a really difficult time from people disagreeing with them not respectfully but you know there are some questions for us there's also questions about who are you accountable to who is able to reflect you know is there any kind of supervision if you're here if you're a counsellor you would have to have supervision what does supervision look like for pastors that's helpful but that also does have some accountability built into it and I think just think when you're at the point where you are perhaps in that bit of the spectrum that I talked about earlier where your behaviour might be unhelpful and sometimes erring into unhealthy. It's about being able to step back when people come and ask you things or, or raise questions and thinking about the way in which you're responding to those. And there is an opportunity to change and address different behaviours. But once it becomes a pattern of behaviour or once you justify that with a spiritual rationale, then that's where it becomes problematic. So you had talked about how people are often just slow to to share some of these stories until maybe they've, you know, decided to leave the community altogether. When people do decide to share these stories with others, what advice do you have for the people that end up listening to them? How should they react or how should they not react? I think that um, we did in our uh, research, we asked people who identified as survivors to tell us what a good response to a story looked like. So I think we've got some really helpful response to that. I think the first thing is to listen and to actively listen. You know when you're being listened to. I think not to minimise what they're talking about. We wouldn't do that in other experiences of abuse. Not to be quick to defend the person or the church, because sometimes that happens at the detriment of the person. If you have safeguarding processes obviously to follow those I think being really careful about prayer and the use of scripture in response if that's been something that's been used to control you it can be actually very scary to have that as part of a response to telling the story one of the things that came up quite clearly in the research was being really careful with Matthew 18 so if you've got a problem with your brother take it to your brother if it's a low level disagreement you know you're disagreeing about we, we, we disagree about lots of things don't we in churches sometimes but if you're disagreeing about kind of what brand of coffee you're drinking or whatever you can sort that out between yourselves but when we get to a situation of spiritual abuse there's a mismatch of power and actually trying to get people together in a room at the beginning is not something you would do in other forms of abuse and so many survivors was sort of really saying be really careful with that approach in this kind of behavior because it's not a meeting of equals that was one of the quotes in our survey I think one of the other things is understanding that it might be difficult for people to make choices so we often say what well, you know what do you want to happen but if you've been very controlled you're pretty sure there's a right or wrong answer to every question and your job is to find out the right answer just understanding that really and understanding that people are genuinely very scared and confused one thing that I was thinking of the entire time is that when one of the issues that comes along with power is that you don't necessarily know how people have modified their behavior to make you feel comfortable in that position. Maybe you will notice if your congregation has gone from one that 
used to ask a lot of questions to no questions. You might notice that type of stuff. You also might not. And you also might think that people actually do think your ideas are really great. And that's why they're telling you that. And maybe they are. And maybe they're not. If you are a leader trying to do some critical reflection around this type of thing, you know, and and ways that maybe you have been manipulative or abused your power in some way, what is a healthy way to actually get some feedback that doesn't kind of, I don't know, end up tainting itself by virtue of you being the one and trying to gather it? There's a few things that I'd say to that. Um, the, the book that we wrote most recently, Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse, Creating Healthy Christian Cultures, Justin, that I wrote that with, wrote a chapter on leadership and culture, and another one on culture. And in there, there's a series of really useful questions that he's been using in leadership training that leaders can ask themselves. So that's a good starting point uh, to think about. You have to think carefully about how to collect information and how that might best be done. And there are all kinds of different ways of doing that. It would be very unlikely that in a very spiritually abusive context, somebody would be would be asking for feedback. Generally, that that's not doesn't happen. But also just finding ways, I suppose, to take stop gaps and actually ask people where they're up to with things. How are how are things working out? So in our own church context at the moment, we've just got a questionnaire that's been sent out asking for feedback on Sunday services, for ideas for developing those. For so there are ways low-level ways, if you like, of opening up a conversation that allows people to... And and that's, for us, one of the big things is about changing culture. How do we create healthy cultures? And actually, that's in small changes. So that's about the conversation that I have on Sunday morning and how I speak about other people and how I cope with it when people disagree with me. And as we start to open up some of the conversations and say, what are our hallmarks? What are the hallmarks of a healthy culture? How do we reflect those? We start to have discussions about that it starts to open up the conversation. One thing that does often happen after there has been trauma is that people suffer some version of PTSD as a result. So if you are a survivor of spiritual abuse, what might that look like in your so own life? I have- specifically looked at PTSD, but I have taken account and looked at um, the impact of the experience more generally. One of the things that we find is that distrust is a huge issue. So if you have been, the the very first thing I ever wrote on this was called unsafe in a safe place. It was somebody who said to me, I was unsafe in the place that I should have been the most safe. And now I don't know who is safe and what is safe. And so actually not being able to trust people is huge. And that might have impacts for counselling, it might have impact for any kind of intervention and support and understanding that that is a really difficult thing for somebody. I think also recognising the level of fear that people might be living with around spiritual consequences of, of their actions, even of leaving. But people do talk about triggers as well. So there might be particular phrases in their context that have been used. There might be particular spaces or Bible passages that are difficult and not necessarily ones that you would, would necessarily think about. But might have been used as part of their experience that can act as triggers. Some people may be quite scared of God now and what God thinks about them. A lot of self-doubt and problems with self-identity. You know, who am I now? Especially if you think, why didn't I see what was going on? Why didn't I see it when I was so those are the kinds of things that certainly for a number of people talk about triggers in terms of words and, and phrases, but they're, they're not particularly things that are easy to share because they might be quite specific to the context that person has been in. So when you get a group from a context who are then speaking to each other when they've left, they may recognize phrases and talk about phrases, but they wouldn't be ones that necessarily anybody else would, would, would know. 
As we wrap this conversation, do you want to just give us a sense of what type of research and projects you're hoping can further develop this field? One thing I would say is, you know, this is difficult stuff. And um, for me as a Christian, it's a difficult area to look at, but it's so important because because people have been harmed and we need to recognize that. But I'm also really wanting to look at how do we create healthier cultures more generally? And that obviously addresses issues of abuse, but it also addresses how do we create cultures in which people flourish and do well and leaders are nurtured and congregational members are nurtured. And it looks something like what we might think church should be. I think some of the work we're looking at now is creating resources that churches and small groups might use um, to help them reflect on their own culture and to build towards healthier cultures, as well as continuing to do work with survivors about what does good intervention and response look like. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for a very thoughtful intro to this really complex yeah, discussion. Very helpful. <laughs> I hope, yeah. I hope. And is there a place where people can find some of your research? I know that you've issued a number of, of key reports uh, in, in the UK, but uh, if, if people wanted to get kind of a little bit more of an introduction, what would be a good place to start? I think that the place that I would suggest people start is the book Escaping the Maze, because actually, although sometimes you think, gosh, a book is a big thing, it's really been written very carefully to. So I wrote a book called Breaking the Silence on Spiritual Abuse a few years ago. But ever since I wrote that, I wanted to write something for a Christian faith audience in a way that was very easy to read. And so Escaping the Maze would be, it is something that is easy to read, but helps people to explore the issue. But also importantly, because of Justin's work looks at the sort of healthy culture stuff as well so that's that would be my kind of go-to and we do have some fact sheets and other things as well but that would probably be a really good place to start great and that's uh, published by University Press here in the U.S. so people can find it through there all right if you have feedback about this send us an email we're at podcast at christianity.com you can also tweet at us at ct podcasts Now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy. Ted Olson. I was going to talk about my breakfast. It was delightful. I'll, t- I'll tell you really quick and then I'll talk about my other one. I, I, I went to McDonald's for the first time today in about a year and a half because we're meeting a little on the early side today. I didn't have time to get my coffee, so I went through the McDonald's drive through And I also was going to make a joke about how on Quick to Listen we go beyond hash browns and, and hotcakes. Ba-dum-bum. Uh, but it was, uh, I, the, I used to go, it's a right, McDonald's is right across the street, but the, it was the manager that gave him my coffee and she's like, Oh, I haven't seen you in so long. It's been, it's so good to see you. How have you been? Oh, you know? a, I'm like, well, man, was I really going to McDonald's? Yes, <laughs> you are. I can back in the day? I did. But also like, I did make it an effort to like actually get to know the people mm. there when I was there. And I was like, Oh, you know, like it is nice to live in a place where people notice that you haven't you know, been there and, and to actually have relationships mm-hmm. even in that kind of corporate context. So that that was a nice warm spot for the day. But I think amid this conversation tonight, I have uh, a vestry meeting with my church. That is a, a, a source of joy for me. I'm, I'm uh, now senior warden on this vestry. And Can you say I, that in plain English? In plain not? English, whatever. I'm, you know, I guess in another, con- it would be like chairman of the board okay. in, in that 
it is it is great to be in a church that is flourishing. I know, you know, especially when you work at a place like Christianity Today and having worked on this story and having, you know, looked a lot about, uh, you know, we hear terrible, you, Morgan, you're in the same boat. We hear terrible stories every single day. Two major churches in our own backyard have like imploded. Imploded, yeah. And it is a joy to get emails from my pastor about like, here's, you know, what, what I'm thinking about for this meeting, you know, any feedback, you know, how do you feel, how do you think that meeting went, all these kinds of things. The exact opposite of the thing we're talking about in this podcast. And I am so grateful that there are so many churches that are that are healthy and, and thrive. You know, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't tell you the breakdown. It's you, you get a warped view at CT because no one writes to you to say, oh, you should do a story about how healthy my church is. But I know I mine is. I hope that they do. I, yeah. Yeah. Send, send them. You can actually send them to me at on Twitter. I'm at Ted Olson, T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N. And we can just share stories about how, Let's start how a much we love our churches. About yeah, this. That's good. All right, Lisa, what has brought you joy? Okay, so anyone that knows me knows that one of the great loves of my life is cake. And uh, <laughs> we have had a bake sale at the university today to raise money for our ball in the summer for the students. So I have had cake for that. It's been real joy. What types um, of cake? Think, what kind of cake? I had carrot cake. Yes. Very, very good. Um, I think the two other very quick things. I love carrot cake, and uh, especially with cream cheese frosting. I, it had the best cream cheese frosting. The two other things slightly more meaningful, maybe, <laughs> is that my mum and dad are moving to live near us, and we went and looked at some houses. So that has been lovely. And I think I'm going to be really honest and say doing this is is just a real privilege. And I'm really grateful that you're willing to talk about it and cover it. It's really important. That's wonderful. Lisa, is there a place people can find you online? Yes, so I'm on Twitter. I think I'm Lisa R. Oakley. So at Lisa R. Oakley. So I'm on Twitter. Um, that's probably the easiest place to find me. And also you can Google the university. You can find me there as well if you want to. One of my precious moments would be this corporate initiative we're doing at work called Snacks and Chats. Ted, you should get on it. And essentially you get a $5 Starbucks gift card, you and whomever the other person is, as long as they're outside of your department, to go chat with them, as is in the name. And when Ted was talking about being known in different spaces, I have not personally had this experience, but there is a Starbucks that is very close to our office. And I just remember going there with one of my colleagues all the time, and they would always greet him so warmly, and then he would always greet everyone so warmly. And that is truly one of my favorite feelings in the world of feeling a sense of familiarity with just people as you're going around your daily life. I know that is true for me at the library. It is. <laughs> Some of that is due to notoriety, too, but also... <laughs> Yeah, I remember growing up, not growing up, when my when my son was growing up, we just, he used to go to the library every day. And it was great walking to the library and like all the librarians would be, hi, Leaf, hi, Leaf. And I was like, wow, this is uh, this yes. is a really unique experience. But yeah, the Wheaton Library, we had a friend who was thinking about moving here. And the one place in Wheaton we took them inside was like, you got to see the library. And, and so yeah, this is a place where you're guaranteed to see one person you know, but probably you'll see four or five. And that's kind of a promise within the first month or two of living here, you know. It's awesome. There's a connection of food here as well. Every one of us has talked about food. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes, it's true. We all love eating with other people. I can attest that. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. 
Leave me a shola does the transcript. If you're going to rate and review the podcast, we ask that you go to Apple Podcasts to do so. Otherwise, feel free to listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts as well. And if you want to subscribe to ChristianityDay.com, that is orderct.com slash podcast. And that's a huge way that you can show your support. I am constantly encouraged by getting emails from people who said they started listening to this podcast and then they subscribed to the magazine. Thank you for doing so. We appreciate it. Have a good week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.